Welcome to the Landscaping Podcast. My name is Joel Barnett and I'm your host. And this is the 26th episode of the Instagram Live Q&As that we've done. And uh, this week's guest on the Sunday, the Monday release podcast is Daniel Althouse from Althouse Landscaping Designs. And it's pretty good chat. It's because he's only been in the, uh, he's had his business about 12 months. So it was good hearing about how he started out and what he's doing um, to, to grow the business and the way he's going about doing things. So it's a good, good one to listen to if you haven't already. Uh, the first question is from Craig at Total Garden Management, and he said, when designing, how much do you consider the maintenance after it's built? So there's a lot of questions I get in this podcast where uh, they're sort of thought-provoking questions where of doing things that I don't do enough, and this is probably another one of them. So there are there's a, there are times where I do think about the maintenance of a project. For example, if you're in a front yard, I do it a fair bit. If you're putting lawn in there and you want plants around the lawn, You've got to leave somewhere for the lawnmower to get into, or you've got to consider how you're going to mow the lawn because you don't want to have to pick up the lawnmower and lift it over a hedge or something like that. So there's little things like that where I do consider the maintenance, but um, but yeah, because I don't have uh, a maintenance team or have enough experience in maintenance, I don't think of it as much as what a maintenance person would. So it was good talking to Cam from Abcam Horticulture when he asked about or he spoke about uh, there was a hedge he was. Uh, having to trim uh, and it was a uh, in between um, the pool and the hedge there was only a 400 mil strip of concrete where the the beam for the pool was so it's not tall enough to put a ladder on there so that makes it hard to trim that hedge when it gets to a certain height I'll trim at the top of it so there's things like that so I don't put enough um, thought into it but it's one of those things you continually improve on and he also followed it up with saying do you consult with the garden maintenance company on how things in design could improve so again not something we do but that's definitely a good idea uh, for myself and other people to do as well just to talk to landscape maintenance people about how uh, like you could if they work on one of your projects you could ask them what could they do better or what could i design better to make that easier to maintain um, so that's one of the benefits of when companies do have the design and maintenance in the same team you have that communication a lot quicker um, but it's certainly something you can still do when you don't have the maintenance business as part of your business. Devolution Landscapes said, how much written detail should you put into the quote? Should all components be itemised? It's a great question because it's uh, it's a very important part, not only the inclusions that are included in the quote, but the ex- exclusions. So um, it's a tricky one because you want to put as much information in there as possible, but you can also get yourself in a bit of a pickle if you do that. But you want to have enough information so that not only you know that you've included everything and so yeah, you cover yourself on what is included in the project, but you want the client to know what they're getting as well so that there's no uh, miscommunication about, you know, I thought you were doing this, but you didn't do it and it just makes it awkward. Um, so you want to make sure you include as much as you can. In my quotes, I have it. Uh, I don't go to, into huge detail on what's included, but I'll have a, um, each item is priced separately. So there'll be excavation, lawn, garden beds, paving, uh, fencing, a deck, pergola. That's really they're all they're all got their own price. Um, so yeah, some people don't include excavation because that's a it's a hard one to quote on because you never know what you're going to find or what the soil is like. But um, but I include that, I, and I generally do okay with it. 
Um, but yeah, you want to, so yeah, you want to put a, a, a fair bit of detail in there. Um, but you don't need to go to the, uh, extent of saying, you know, how thick, well, you could do, you could say how thick crushed rock bed is going to be and how thick your concrete is going to be and how thick the mortar bed and go into that minute detail, but I don't think it's necessary. Um, if you do things, uh, more than the minimum, it's not a bad thing to list that. Like if you're always doing 110 mil concrete slabs under your paving, you could list that you're doing that because you're going to be more expensive than someone who's not doing it that thick. So if you're doing something better than what most other people are, then you want to list that within your quote so that then the client knows why you might be a bit more expensive unless they're getting a better product for, for the price and not just paying extra so you can go on holidays to Bali. Uh, next question is from Exotic Living Sydney. Do you use square meter rates when quoting and find they're accurate due to site variables? So the only reason I uh, – there are some things I do square meter on, but I think it might just be garden beds because uh, that's always pretty standard. And I think I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, um, but I don't do it with paving or anything else or decks. I do work it out at the end just out of curiosity, um, but I did used to have – prices so i've got a i had a price sheet on um my hourly rate calculations on how i worked everything out and on that i had listed how much i would charge at the time for uh, crazy paving and the concrete slab under paving and garden beds and lawn and i like i did it probably i reckon i did it when i started so it would have been yeah 14 years ago possibly but i had um under paving for concrete it was $66 a metre, and now I'm close to double that. Uh, the crazy paving, I think, it was 130 and I think that included the concrete and labour. And now it'd be more than double, or way more than double for that. So that's that can be the tricky thing about you doing um, square meterage rates if you don't continually update them as the prices increase. Uh, and the other thing, like you mentioned, is the site variable. So, yeah, there's times where you can get, uh, like if you're working in the backyard, you can drive around the back of the property and have vehicle at the back, uh, and then you can, you know, get vehicles direct on site. You might have the concrete truck and um, other trucks being able to get onto the actual property and tip things, but other times you have to wheelbarrow through a house or down the side of a house. So it's that's... Probably the main reason you shouldn't be doing square meterage rates on that sort of thing because every site is so different. Like walking up and down a hill makes a massive difference compared to a flat block. Um, the time of year you do it, in summer you're going to be going a lot faster because it's less likely to be rain and mud, whereas in winter you're going to take longer because there'll be a little bit of rain can turn everything into mud. Um, so definitely don't do square meterage rates, but it's still not a bad thing to work out that yeah, this price I worked out is this much per square meter. So then you get an idea on on what your costs are. And then if for some reason you do it quite later on and it's really low, maybe you've missed something. So yeah, it's not a bad idea to do that. Uh, it's a quick one, quick question from the Snow Forest in saying, how did your curve step turn out the other night? What time did you finish? I, I left probably about 7 o'clock, I think it was. Um, but I haven't been back since, so I've got to go back and sand it this week and uh, give it a polish, but um, but it was looking all right when I left. Um, so fingers crossed it's still all good, but 
Uh, there was that one, but, but I'd poured that one a lot later than the rest of them, so the rest of them I'd finished uh, already by that time. So I think there was 14 steps on that, so just just a trout, trout finished concreting. So I wasn't doing burnished, otherwise it would have been there till 11. And Simon from the Planter Space asked a question late last week, which I didn't have time to add on, but he said, some landscapes, some landscapers have Cert 3 in landscaping, Cert 4 in horticulture or no qualification at all. Do you consider those who have done the apprenticeship the only true landscapers? And is that the best pathway? And how would you structure the industry if you had a magic wand? So I've mentioned a couple of times that uh, Sean McDonald is the best landscaper I know and he's not qualified. So I obviously don't put a lot of weight into people who are qualified or not. And I've also employed a qualified landscaper for a very short time because he had no idea what he was doing, didn't know how to lay pavers at all, but he was qualified. So, it, and I've seen what they teach at uh, at TAFE. So there is, I'm yet to find a benefit to ha- having a qualification within landscaping. Uh, experience is a billion times more important. Um. Yeah, I don't know. About, I don't know so much about design because obviously I do designs and I'm not trained in it. So I'd be a bit hypocritical if I was saying that you, should, you need to do a design course to before you can do designs. No doubt, people who have done that know a lot more than me, and there's certain um, little little details that I find I've heard landscape designers talking about that I had no idea about. So you know, you you can't really compare learning at TAFE during a landscape construction apprenticeship to learning a design course. Uh, you're obviously going to learn a lot more in a design course because that's like 90%, like probably 90% of it is, you know, computer-based and theory-based, whereas in landscape construction apprenticeship, it's the opposite. It's probably, yeah, 90% is actual construction rather than the theory-based. So, uh, and there's, um, like as Dan Knight said last week, his apprentices train on-site. So I feel like the tapes just slow things down. Like you do get your piece of paper at the end. And, but in terms of uh, having a magic wand and how I would change things, I wouldn't have a clue. So although I'm critical of the way things are done, I've got no better solution for it. So can't really complain too much. And I still might send my guys to tapes to get their uh, qualifications. But, um, but yeah, certainly if, if I was looking for a qualified landscaper and someone applied who'd been landscaping for seven years but had just been a laborer the whole time but they knew how to do everything that we could do and I would certainly wouldn't don't not put them on because they haven't got their qualification. Uh, Reese Chapman from RC Landscapes said, I found when getting a call for a new home build, nine out of ten clients don't have a clue what their design costs to build and freak out when they get the quoted price. Uh, should or do designers ask how much people want to spend before designing these eighty to one hundred twenty thousand dollars projects when the client can't spend that kind of money? It is that's one of the trickiest parts of a design consultation is getting the price, getting the budget off a client, and what they're wanting to spend. And I can certainly understand why, because some people have got no idea what they want to spend. It's not like they've allowed a certain dollar figure that they can spend. They just sort of want to get. They've usually got. An idea of what they want to get. So, you know, I want a pool and a pergola and paving here, grass here, garden beds, all this sort of stuff. They've got an idea of what they want, but they haven't put any thought into it, how much it would cost. And quite understandably, they've got no idea how much it would cost. Like, I'll look at a project and 
have no idea how much it would cost until I actually sit down and quote it as well. And I've been doing this job for nearly 20 years. So certainly understandable that people who haven't been doing it at all don't know what things cost. Um, but so it, there's the way we do our designs is we'll like ask if they've got a budget they want to stick to. And if they say, yeah, we want to spend $30,000 on our complete landscaping, I'll say, well, there's no point us doing a design because you're not going to get the value out of it. Um, but if they've got a more realistic budget we can work to, then you can at least work to that. But we'll also include things that will go over the budget because a lot of the time people um, have got, like if they list a certain amount of things that they want, you want to include them all so that then they can pick and choose what they do want to include and what they don't want to include. Because if they, uh, I've said it, I said it a little while ago, we had a client who wanted to spend 50000 was their budget, they said. Uh, and it was around a pool, so that, that included the paving, the pool fencing and everything. And they wanted pergola and all this other stuff as well. So I said, um, well, I actually laughed at the time, but that was because I thought they were joking, but they weren't. But th- but then I ended up doing a quote with what they wanted, and it was 110000 I think, and then they so they ended up going with that. So that's more than double what they said their budget was. But so it depends. Like that, their budget might be ideally what they want to spend, um, but they might, their preference might be getting their wish list over meeting their budget wish list. Um, so it is, it is, it's important to have an idea. It's, it's, it's a lot harder for designers who are only designers because they have no idea how much things cost to build. Because like I said before, I don't know what they cost to build until they actually sat down and worked it out. So, yeah, I don't. I find I think it'd be extremely difficult for a designer to to not only get a budget from the client to start with, but then act to actually design to it uh, without having to communicate with the landscape builder. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's not a not an easy thing to do, uh, and it's the designer doesn't isn't going to be delib- like get finding out the client's got a forty thousand dollar budget and then designing a hundred fifty thousand dollar project just so their design looks awesome, but. That no one would waste their time doing that. So, if there is some design shock or cost shock, it's not deliberate from the designer. I can assure you. So, uh, it's a tricky one to get around to start with, but it's an important question as well. Uh, and it's important to have that conversation from the start because there's no point chatting to them for an hour talking about what they want if you're not going to be able to meet what their budget is or they, if they've got an unrealistic budget. So, yeah, good question, um, and it's not a black and white answer, but it's an important one to to keep in mind. Uh, Weber Landscape said, any secrets to managing cash flow? I replied quick, pretty quick to him saying that I'm the worst person to ask about tips for managing cash flow. Um, I should be asking someone else that so I can get some advice on that because I'm horrendous at it. It's I've got all the ideas on how to you know, have all these different accounts so you can put money into you. So it's good. So the my answer would be to have separate accounts like for PAYG. So you can, every week when you pay your employees, you put a certain amount into the PAYG account. When money comes into your account, you can put 10% of that into your BAS account. Uh, you can work out how much your uh, work cover is going to be annually. And then every week or every month, you can put money into a separate account for that. So that then when that time comes around, you've got money to pay for that. And you can do that for other expenses as well. But things that come along annually, you can work out uh, how much it will cost weekly and just put that money aside every week. So that's how you can sort of um, take away those 
uh, shocks when they come along for the bigger expenses items. And you can also do it with, if you've got accounts with suppliers, you can also put, like let's say you spend, yeah, a thousand bucks at Bunnings on a day when you're going to pick up some stuff or get it delivered. You can have a separate account for accounts and you can put a thousand bucks into that account. So you've got the money there for when you need to pay that account at the end of the month or 30 days after the end of the month. But if you need that cash for something else, you've got that, you can pull it out. Yeah to help with your cash flow. So even though you've got all these things, like you don't need to pay your uh, work cover straight away and you don't need to pay these accounts straight away, if you can put the money aside, then that makes it, that helps with the cash flow later on, but it also stops your cash flow at the immediate time. So um, I I reckon if you had, if I had uh, a big sum of money, then I would be a lot, and I could spend, I'd still be spending the same amount but it would just make things so much easier rather than having to come to the end of a month thinking, oh, I've got, got so much money in the account and then all of a sudden you pay all these bills and then you're scratching around because you've got nothing else left. So, um, And another tip for it, I've found it difficult is when you've got multiple jobs on at once because uh, I always seem to have make the profit on the job at the end of the job. So I don't know if that's the way that I um, set up my payments or, or what it is, or if that's just normal, whereas the, the profit seems to come at the end of the job. So if you've got multiple jobs on, you're, you know, you've got a lot of balls up in the air uh, spending on multiple projects. So that more jobs on at once makes it harder as well. So if you can do one, that's ideal, but then if something goes wrong with that one, you haven't got another job to go to, that's where, that's where you can get into strife that way as well. So... There's pros and cons for both on having multiple jobs on, but it definitely doesn't help with cash flow. Um, what else would there be? I reckon they're they're probably the main ones. I think they're probably invoicing often as well. So if you're doing contracts, rather than having um, milestone invoices when you get like rather than having them fifteen percent or twenty percent. You can make them, yeah, five percent. When you hit this, it's five percent. This is five percent. So you're not they're not as big sums, but you don't have to do as much to get them. So, for example, if you're doing if the paving was one of your milestone invoices, rather than getting twenty five percent when all the paving is done, you could do five percent when excavations are done, five percent when the other paving is done, ten percent when the pavers are on site, another five percent when the paving is done, or something like that. So, um. Yeah, so it can be a bit annoying to having to issue those invoices, but again, that's something that would help with cash flow. So then, so it's more of a steady incline of cash coming in rather than a flat line, then a big spike, and then straight back down again. So yeah, it's heaps of tips. So if anyone else has got any advice on helping cash flow, feel free to send me a message and I'll share that uh, next week. Next question is from Burrell Insta, and he said, what are your thoughts on PVC Hampton style fencing and do you think it's durable enough? So I haven't used it, but I have seen it a couple of times. Um, never in person though, so not the best person to talk about it, but I reckon that it looks like it'll be a good product, but I think the colours are limited and I don't know how you'd go painting it if there was a stain on there or something like that. Um, yeah, I just reckon it looks like a good product, but it's kind of limited so it's similar to 
it's got a similar kind of feel about it, like the um, aluminium pool fencing, like the Bunnings pool fe- black aluminium pool fencing. So it, it is what it is. I assume it's not crazy expensive, but um, but you know what you're getting with it. Um, and yeah, and and it's, I don't know what what it's like in terms of uh, sustainability. It's not using timber, so that's not ideal, and it's using PVC, so I don't know if it's recycled or what. Um, so yeah, don't know enough about it to to provide any value in an answer. Um, but and I also don't know about the the durability of it too. So don't know how if it's like a I suppose if you think about a ninety mil stormy, if it, if they're like that, it's going to probably be pretty solid. But I don't know how easy it is to damage or scratch and how you fix a scratch, but. Uh, it's yeah, one to look out for. Uh, Green Room Landscape said, "What are your pros and cons or preference to hiring a first-time full employee, a first full-time employee, apprentice or experienced?" That is a great question. I had that same conversation with Bruce Win Stanley when I was starting this second part of InStyle back in 2015. Uh, so, he he said if he was doing it, he would put on a qualified person. Um, but I went with the safer option and went with an apprentice. So it depends on what your goals are. If you're wanting to start, like grow your business quicker, you'll put on a qualified person because you're going to be able to do that quicker. But you never know what you're going to get. Um, and you've got to keep up with things a lot more because you're going to get through the work quicker, hopefully, if you put on a qualified person. Uh, whereas if you put on a, an apprentice, it's a lot slower. You need to be there more often and sort of hold their hand. Um, but you can train someone up to do things the way you want to get done. So as I was talking about before, when I put on the qualified landscaper who had no idea what he was doing, I wanted to put on a qualified person at that time, but I realised that they're going to be too hard to find someone who actually knows what to do and someone who can actually pave. So I thought I'd, I'll put on a an apprentice and it's going to take longer to get where I want to get, but I'm going to get someone who knows how that I, that knows how to do things the way I want to get them done. Uh, and you never know if you're going to get a good apprentice or not either, but uh, that's what that's what I did, and yeah, no regrets about that. It's it's also depends on what's out there. Like if you're going to find if you could find a um, apprentice who's awesome or a qualified person who's awesome, you'd go with the awesome person. And as Foley's landscaping, you said you can teach skills but not attitude. So look the attitude first, and yeah, same with the work ethic as well. Like. It's uh, you can have lazy qualified landscapers and lazy apprentices. It doesn't matter what their experience is. If they're if they're lazy, they're not going to be not going to be right for my company anyway. So yeah, apprentice or experience, it depends what what your preferences are. So the the pros for the apprentice would be their cost and teaching them to do things the way you want to do them, and then the pros for the landscapers that they've got experience already so you can you know leave them to do work if they want and you can get through work quicker and then you could potentially if they, and if they work out all right then you could put on both if things are going really well with the qualified one then you can put on a qualified and an apprentice um so yeah it really depends what your goals are and the cons with an apprentice is that they're they've got no idea what they're doing most of the time uh they're usually having to go a day off for school depending on how their apprenticeship is structured. Um, and yeah, you just need, you can't duck off as much as you can if you've got a qualified person because you've got to 
um, keep an eye on them so they're doing things properly and safely. And then the cons for a, a qualified it would be the cost being more and they might have, well, I was going to say they might have a different way of doing things, but that could be a pro as well. So that, that can increase your skill set if they've learnt to do something different that uh, that can help out. So, yeah, there's no no wrong answers, I don't think. It's just getting the right person. And as far as landscaping said, again, one bad apple can spoil the tree. So, um, But if, you, if it's your first one, then you're the only tree. So hopefully you aren't spoiled by that one. Uh, Simon from the Planned Space has got a question for this week saying, what are your thoughts on landscaping guidelines in new estates? I reckon it's a massive waste of time and money having those estate guidelines. Like, I understand they're, what they're trying to achieve out of it, but they don't, never achieve it, and it's just a pain in the ass to have to jump through their hoops, get designs done that meet their guidelines, and then nobody does it like that anyway, and they've got no way of making you change it so that it doesn't meet their guidelines. Um, we've done designs in these estates and uh, you'd submit your design and then they'd make you change it uh, and then you'd end up getting it ticked off and then do another design in that estate. And I'll do the exact same design that the client wanted, the same as the other one that got approved, and I'll make you change it as well. So, And it's not because it matches the other one, it's just because they're... Um, Sort of making their, making themselves, making their job exist. So they just want to uh, make up a reason for them, justify. That's what the word I was looking for. They justify their existence. So they, if you just send a desire, they can't say, yeah, that's good. They've got to say, no, you need to change this and this. So it's like the ones where they make you put a, a tree in the front yard. People just put in, like there's one in my street. You're supposed to put in a two-meter tree, and they've put in a um, a leptospermum copper glow. That's their two-meter tree. So, what's the point? Like, it's, that's not a tree; it's a shrub. Um. So yeah, is it like if they were enforced so that they all look the same? I can understand why they'd be worthwhile doing. Um. But yeah, people just put in like their front yard can be at just lawn everywhere. And then one tree, and that ticks the box. So, a lot of stupid things that get done in them. So they, they, there's no point in having them really. And they got, they're a great idea if they're enforced properly, but they never are, and there's no way of doing it. So, not a fan, as you might be able to tell. And the last question from the Life of Bow River said, "What do you think about everyone putting out the same style, i.e., concrete steps?" So I'd be a bit hypocritical if I criticise that because I'll be doing some concrete steps. At my place as well, um, but uh, in terms of design, there's there's no real new ideas. Everyone just sort of tweaks existing stuff. Well, concrete's been around, the steps have been around. People have been doing concrete steps. I, I remember at my school, there's concrete steps, and that was they were done in the probably in the sixties. I reckon they were made. So everything is just a slight variation of something else. Um, there's no real new ideas in terms of the overall structure, it's just tweaking things to make them work better. Um, but in terms of like everyone doing the same type of, you know, shadow line, concrete step, I understand that that is a bit repetitive, but so is doing grass in the backyard. Like there's only certain things you can use. Um, so I don't have a problem with it because like things, you, things you'll see on Instagram, it doesn't mean you're seeing it um, 
like every house next to each other is the same. So there's a lot of places that are completely different. So the good look, the projects that, that do well on Instagram that look awesome, they all look, they might all look similar, but that's not necessarily what's happening in the real world. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of houses in the world and a lot of, a lot of places that get landscaped so that, and they don't all look the same. So I understand where the question is coming from because it's a bit of a trend doing the same type of stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't have a problem with it, obviously. Uh, and, and I've had people say, um, like when I've done an Instagram post that people liked the look of whatever it was I did, they said, you know, that looks awesome. I'm going to copy it. And I, I think it's awesome that they copy it. Uh, I'm not going to see it. So it doesn't bother me. It's not, it's not in my next door neighbor. So I think it, yeah, if someone likes something you've done or if someone, like if someone sees something they think looks awesome, so they want it, I think that's great. So that's just the inspiration of it. So that is the last question for today or for this evening. Uh, as I said at the start, uh, out this week is Daniel Althaus from Althaus Landscape Design. Uh, good fella. He's the first person who requested I wear a particular item of clothing. So um, you can tune into that if you want to see it. And we'll put out these questions again next week. And thank you very much for everyone who submitted one. And we'll see you next week.